Before we jump in, I, I really would like to pray with you and ask God to be our teacher. Would you join me in that? Father, you cause your word to come alive, and so we invite that right now. We pray through the power of the Holy Spirit that you would speak directly to our hearts. Let these words jump off the page that were written 2,000 years ago, but were written for a reason. You said that you can um, divide and you can sharpen and you can use that sword that you have to pierce to the deepest part of our heart. And you can actually interpret our thoughts, sometimes in ways that we don't even understand our thoughts. Father, I would pray that you would not only do that, but you would take your word, translate it through the power of the Holy Spirit, and help us to understand how this applies to our life. I pray especially that you would encourage us this morning, because there's so much encouragement in the midst of this. For the sense of joy that comes from it, God, I pray that you would lighten our heart, but at the same time convict, where we need to sharpen our approach to you, some who may not even be yet in relationship with you, God, that you would use this to draw them deep into a relationship with you. Pray, Father, that you would strengthen, strengthen those who are believers, that we would not leave here unchanged, but rather shaped by the word of the living God. We pray for this in the majestic name of Jesus, our Savior, and all God's people said, amen. The first four parables that we've looked at so far in Matthew 13 all had kind of a theme to it. We saw that last week. They're kind of a, an agricultural theme that Jesus kept using in his illustrations. He's not going to do that today. In the very first one we looked at early part of January, he was using the four soils to represent the four types of hearts and how they respond. Last week we saw the mustard seed, and it was talking about the explosive growth of the kingdom, how we're part of that growth and what God is doing. Well, there's a transition now in Matthew 13. You're going to find yourself down around verse 44 or 45, but I want you to first look with me on the screen at verse 36 because something changes here. It says, verse 36, then he left the crowds and went into the house. So he's no longer on the beach. Jesus is no longer sitting in the boat and people are gathered around him by the hundreds apparently. He actually sends them home according to the King James Version. He sent them away. And so they're walking. They're on their way back. The crowd's gone. They're headed home. And logically, questions are going to pop up in their mind. Because they've been listening to Jesus do all this teaching. You and I have been in this since January. They got to sit right there and listen to him explain these things and speak. And, and now they're logically going to have questions in their mind like, okay, who gets into this kingdom? How does that work? Are people born into it? How does someone actually become part of this kingdom that he keeps talking about? Is it like being born into a citizenry of a, a country? That'd be logical in their mind because to be a part of Rome, to be a Roman citizen, you had to be born in a Roman province. You and I, we think that way because we're born in the United States and that's one of the ways to become a citizen. You can be born into the country. Or perhaps like the ancient Jews thought, that just because they were a descendant of Abraham, they're automatically citizens of the kingdom of God. Well, apparently those kind of questions are also on the disciples' minds. Specifically, they got a question about one of the parables Jesus taught, the parable of the tares. They've heard the same parables that the crowd heard, and now it's stimulated questions for them. They're going to get a private session from Jesus. He goes back into this house you just read about, and they follow him in, and they begin asking him questions about the parable of the tares. But after he explains that to them, he does something to 
expand their mind, take them to a new place of thinking. And, and that's the parable that we're at this morning. Actually, there's two of them, and you find them in verses 44 and 45. Let's dive right into them. It's specifically about entrance into the kingdom. Verse 44, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in the field, which a man found and hid again, and from joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Keep going, verse 45, second parable. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking fine pearls, and upon finding one pearl of great value, he went and sold all that he had and bought it. So in the really big picture here, the emphasis is on personal appropriation of the kingdom. Want to hear that again? It's on personal appropriation of the kingdom. In other words, the question that might be on individuals' minds as they're walking away, and Jesus has been talking about the kingdom of heaven is like, the kingdom of heaven is like, the kingdom of heaven is like, well, logically, you're going to say, how do I get into that kingdom? Well, Jesus has just kind of answered that question very directly, but we need to understand how he breaks it down. What's this parable saying? Well, he's speaking about seizing salvation. So let's break it down the way a first century person would have understood it. Look with me on the screen at this phrase. Just bear down to this first part of verse 44. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in the field. Now, we've been learning since we started the parable series back in October, the first section and now the second section, that when Jesus is talking about the kingdom of heaven, he's talking about this age that you live in right now in 2020. He's talking about the church age, the age that started with his departure from this planet and will continue on all the way until his second coming. It's a mystery age, Jesus calls it. The mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, and you're in it right now. You're in this period of time, this era, and he's describing the kingdom of heaven. It's like a treasure hidden in a field. Very few people would have found buried treasure themselves in the first century, but they very likely know someone who did, or they heard of someone who did because of the uniqueness of the setting of the first century because of the practice of burying your treasure in fields or in valleys, in caves, or in the trunks of trees that were hollowed out. People would hide their treasure commonly because there's no banking system in the first century. There's no place to take your deposits to. So many people protected their valuables in secret places in the ground, which explains why today people continue to unbury treasure that's been found. I read a fascinating report a couple of weeks ago of some guys who found some coins that were buried in a field in England, just a huge trove worth millions of dollars, coins that have been stashed away by somebody under the trunk of a tree that had decayed. Occasionally, when Lori and I lived in Arizona, we'd hear about people who would go for walks in the desert and they would stumble across treasure chests that had been taken from stagecoats and left behind or somebody was killed in the middle of a robbery. Every once in a while, that continued to happen, and those stories, I love them, they just fascinate me. But they had no banks in the first century, and they didn't have any banking system, so in the first century, if you needed money for a major purchase, you'd go to your hiding place. You'd go to the place where you had buried your box or your jar, and you would uncover it, take out what's needed, and then rebury the jar. Well, ancient Israel is the site of many battles going back generations, hundreds and hundreds of years. And if you happen to live in a siege territory, in a war territory, battlegrounds, you're going to want to protect your assets. You don't want the plundering army coming through and taking your family's valuables. So many of them buried food, 
During siege years, they would bury household goods. Even some of them buried furniture, and let alone their jewels and, and their money. There was a historian who lived in the first century, and his name is Josephus, Flavius Josephus. He was hired by Rome to create a historical document to record the history of the Jews. Josephus wrote this about this very issue that we're talking about. The gold and the silver and the rest of the most precious furniture which the Jews had and which the owners treasured underground was done to withstand the fortunes of war. So the fields and the valleys and the caves, they all became this storehouse. And if a landowner was dead or if the landowner had been driven from their land and they didn't tell anybody where they put their treasure... Well, you can imagine the treasure was lost until someone accidentally uncovered it, which seems to be the case in which Jesus is talking about. It's the situation here. Look at verse 44 closely again. It says, which a man found, Jesus records that, and hid again. So in our parable, someone has stumbled over part of a buried fortune, likely walking through a field. There's been a storm, maybe the winds have come, or the rain came down, and for some reason erosion took place, and this one finds a treasure in the midst of a field, and it's exposed enough, just enough, for him to see and to convince him, I got to sell everything that I have in order to buy this land. So Jesus says, first he reburies it, and then he's determined that what he has found is so extraordinary, he's got to have it. That the land is for sale in the first place is unique in itself. I'll come back to that in just a moment. This, for the sake of argument here, let, let's just talk about the ethics of this situation. Some people are uncomfortable when they read this particular story because they think Jesus is teaching poor ethics. Well, hear this, the, the point of the parable is not about ethics. It, it's about the willingness to sacrifice everything to possess that which you don't have. But just for the sake of the argument, let's hit the ethics issue in, in case you're struggling with that, because here where some people struggle on it. They, they think, wait, isn't the buyer compelled? Isn't that one convicted to tell the seller about the treasure? Well, in context, what he does is not dishonest, especially given the setting in the first century and the rules about hiding treasure. Uh, obviously, the treasure was not hidden by the current landowner or he would never give up the land if he knew the treasure was there that's worth everything the other person has to sell it. So obviously, he hasn't been the one who hid it. That means he must be a second owner, or maybe a broker, or perhaps a lawyer, because he didn't hide the treasure. That the land is for sale is unique in itself, I said. Why? Because land wasn't typically for sale, especially farmland in the first century. Families who had worked for generations to pass it down to family member after family member after family member after they had cleared the land and removed the rocks and put in the furrows, they were not about to give it up. So obviously we have a situation here in which the original family members are no longer involved at a minimum. This is secondhand land. But then there's this detail. There's a well-known rabbinic law. You'll see it up on the screen. It's also in your notes this morning if you pulled those out of the bulletin. It says this, if a man finds scattered fruit or money, it belongs to the finder. Well, that's pretty simple. So if the owner is now deceased or unknown, the finder has the right to keep what's found. 
But superior to all of that is just this issue of basic honesty, which rules the day, and it's recorded by Jesus. What's he hitting at here? He says he sold all he had. See, if this guy was dishonest, all he'd have to do is come back at nighttime, dig up the treasure, and haul it off. He doesn't have to buy the land. So he's not a dishonest individual. Now, that's just all aside. That's just a detail. But that helps feed into this information here in verse 44. It says, from joy over it. Look at that closely. From joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has and buys the field. So he's going to clear his balance sheet and liquidate all of his assets, everything that he owns. He's going to take every possession that he owns to sell it in order to own this. And I notice in the story that he doesn't even use a fraction of the treasure. Rather, he reburies it and uses his own assets to go out and buy the land. Now, that's the detail on the first one. Let's hit the detail on the second one. Go to verse 45 again. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant sinking fine pearls. And upon finding one pearl of great value, he went and sold all that he had and bought it. If you've looked in your notes already, you see there's just one Greek word this morning. It's the word emporos. And this is talking about that merchant. And this type of merchant is a traveling merchant. This is a, a business person who goes out and travels great distances to other lands and negotiates and sees things that he likes, buys it, and brings it back to his own country to sell it. So we have a professional here, somebody who knows what they're doing, who travels extensively to many countries. It's kind of like the ancient Midianites in the Old Testament. They were really shrewd bankers and, and shrewd negotiators. They're very good at what they did. This emperor falls into that category. This particular one, Jesus said, is spending time seeking fine pearls, which means he's visiting coastal regions. Why coastal regions? Because that's where they collect pearls. He's going over to like the Mediterranean and haggling with the divers. And the price of pearls was extraordinarily high in the first century. Pearls have always been pricey. They're pricey today, but they were even more extravagant and extremely precious in the first century for this reason. Diving was incredibly hazardous. They had developed systems by taking air with them down, but once that was gone, if they're too deep, they may die on the way back up trying to find oysters, or they damage their lungs. And because of all those reasons, pearls were really, really precious because of their scarcity and because of their natural beauty. People really wanted them to the degree that they valued them even more than diamonds. So in the ancient world, pearls were bought as investments. They're small enough. You could tuck them in your coat or put them in a pocket. You could sew them into a seam. You could travel with them and exchange them as cash. People really wanted pearls. The Jewish Talmud is an ancient has, uh, historical writing by the, the rabbis. It actually speaks of pearls as being beyond price. You can't set a price on it. Well, in Egypt and in Rome, they even worshipped pearls. That's why you find Paul writing to Timothy saying, admonish the women in the church not to put these pearls woven into their hair because they'd sew them into their hair so that people would worship them and, and come before them and bow down before them. All of that understanding of the value of pearls in this period of time should actually give you a new perspective on Jesus' statement about casting pearls before swine. He begins talking about the value of pearls, which is the gospel in that case. He says, don't just throw it down before people who have no regard for it whatsoever. That's just an aside thought, though. See, you've got this merchant. 
this emperos, who considers this particular pearl worth more than all his pearls put together. How do I know that? Well, because they would naturally be included in the sale. If he's selling everything that he has, it's including all of the pearls that he's collected from whatever far distant places he's gone to, he's going to trade them in so he can get this one. Remember what Jesus is driving at here. The kingdom of heaven is like, it's like this great treasure that's been found in a field. The kingdom of heaven is like, it's like what, Jesus? It's like this pearl of great price, so great that no one has seen something so valuable like this before. And the emphasis that he's driving at here is the personal appropriation of the kingdom because this is all about salvation. So the pearl and the treasure here, they both represent the kingdom, especially when you bear down into eternal life and the gospel. So we put four specific things that this relates to in your notes this morning. You're going to see them go up on the screen. Let's just work down through them fairly quickly. Here's here's how it relates, the four specifics about the kingdom that you're seeing in this parable, especially as it relates to salvation. Here's the first one. This kingdom that Jesus is describing, it's personally apprehended. It's something you personally have to do. Both of them focus on the individual surrendering everything in order to gain what they don't have to gain something that is immeasurably valuable, so valuable they're willing to surrender all that they have. Do you notice that it's not obtained by their genealogy? It's not obtained by being a citizen of a certain country. You don't get it because you're born into it. You're not a Christian just because you live in the United States of America. Around the world, the USA is still considered a Christian nation. A lot of people will debate over that whether or not it is. But you're not born to be a Christian just because you live in the United States. Jesus is speaking of someone who's not obtaining it by genealogy. They have to sacrifice everything in order to gain it. Paul recognized this was an issue in the time that he lived, and he had to write about this in Romans chapter 9. Look with me on the screen at this, Romans 9, 6. They are not all Israel who are descended from Israel, neither are they all children because they are Abraham's descendants. In other words, Paul says it it takes more than just being born a descendant of Abraham. It was an issue in the first century. It's an issue today. You may be able to trace your family membership in a church back generations, but that doesn't automatically make you a Christian. You have no part in Christ just because you're born into it. My great-great-great-great-grandfather established a little church on Mackinac Island known as Mission Point. He was there in the late 1600s and the early 1700s. If you go to Mackinac Island today, there's a little stone chapel outside the Grand Hotel. If you look at the Grand Hotel, you'll see a stained glass window with a pastor with a Bible in his hand like that. That's my great, 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 great grandfather. I'm not a Christian simply because he established a church on Mackinac Island and he reached the natives of Mackinac Island. I'm not born into it. It's a personally appropriated. You have to apprehend it yourself to be saved. And maybe you've never been clear on this before. To be saved, it means you must make a personal decision to believe and receive Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord. You good with that? More than one amen than just Jerry back there, right? (laughs) I hope you're good with that. Number two. The kingdom is priceless. 
This, this is expressing the value, Jesus is saying, the worth to the degree that you would surrender all that you possess in order to receive it. I want you to be really clear on how you hear me on this. For all the effort that we put in this nation, for all the money that we invest into getting the best careers and into getting the finest homes and into obtaining the most precious jewels, none of those can heal a broken relationship. None of those can give you forgiveness of your sin. None of those can give you entrance into heaven. For all the effort we put into it, the focus is misguided. Job is considered to be the oldest book of the Bible, written even before Moses recorded Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Job is considered the oldest. And and Job's wisdom leaks off the pages. I want to show you a section from Job from chapter 28, a few different verses put together in pieces. It starts down in verse 12 and it ends in in verse 28. Look with me on the screen at this. But where can wisdom be found and where is the place of understanding? Man does not know its value, nor is it found in the land of the living. The deep says, it is not in me, and the sea says, it is not with me. Pure gold cannot be given in exchange for it, nor can silver be weighed as its price. God understands its way, and he knows its place. And to man, he said, behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. And to depart from evil is understanding. The value of being in the kingdom. If you're in the kingdom this morning, you're a believer in Jesus Christ this morning, the value of being in the kingdom is absolutely priceless. Jesus has validated that himself. If you have Jesus this morning, you have greater wealth than Bill Gates and Jeff Bezos combined. Right? You know who I'm talking about. You know, there's material wealth represented there. But you have eternal wealth. Remind yourself, regardless of where you're at this morning, you have great wealth. You could have a lifetime free pass on Amazon. To get anything that you want, it could be like the Willy Wonka bar with a little chocolate or gold wrapper on it that would give you access to the chocolate factory. What if Amazon did that, gave a gold card out so you could buy anything you wanted anytime you wanted the rest of your life? You could have everything that Amazon could send you, but it would never equal what Jesus offers you. It would never amount to that, and it's free. There is nothing to compare to at New Hope. There is nothing like this. Can you get Amazon to send you an order of forgiveness this morning? Can you get Amazon to send you an order of peace? Could you get them to send you a healed relationship? I got on their website and I put those things in. They don't have them. It didn't even say out of stock. It just said, we don't have it. There's nothing to compare to this. Yet many people, maybe even among us this morning, many mortgage their life to gain possessions, to gain fame, to gain power. And Jesus responds with, what what does that profit you? 
what good does it do to gain the whole world if you're going to lose your soul? Look with me on the screen at that, his direct quote from him, Mark 8.36. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what will a man give in exchange for his soul? Even if all those things that the world offers you, even if they were all combined and packaged together and they brought you satisfaction, Jesus is saying the value of being in God's kingdom far exceeds it. And the cool thing is the price of admission to God's kingdom is absolutely free. Wow. You can't earn it because you can't put a price on it. You can't earn your way into God liking you more. He already loves you. Let's go to number three. The kingdom has varied entry points in life. Hear hear this. Now, maybe you should be thinking right now of that song they used to love to play at Billy Graham's Crusades, Just As I Am. The kingdom has varied points at which entry takes place in people's life. There's only one path, and it's it's a narrow path, and it's a narrow gate, Jesus said, but there's varied points in your life. You you can come to Christ this morning, right now. You can come from wherever you are. In other words, I mean, you don't have to make yourself any better. You can't make yourself any better. Jesus takes you just as you are, just as I am, without one plea. Because you got nothing to offer except yourself. You bring yourself. So these two parables, they're very similar in outcome. They both obtain the prize, but they differ in how they find the treasure. One comes to the treasure completely by chance. He's just walking through the field, taking a shortcut, trying to get someplace, and wow, treasure. Jesus says in the other illustration, that one is diligently, deliberately looking for it. How how do we understand that? Well, let's use some biblical illustrations to put some feet on that because in a similar way, many people come to a hearing of the gospel while they're pursuing the activities of life. Here's an example for you. Saul, who later became known as Paul, the last thing he was doing in life was looking for Jesus to be his Lord and Savior. He wasn't chasing after Jesus for that reason. He was chasing after Jesus' followers to put them in jail. And boom, head on, right into Jesus. Paul, why do you persecute me? Or the woman at the well, she's just doing her daily chores. She just wants to get water for her family. Who does she encounter? Boom, right into Jesus. Contrast that with Nicodemus. The lawyer who's got legitimate questions comes to Jesus at night, John chapter 3. How is a man born again? He's asking philosophical questions, trying to put the pieces together, coming at varied points in their life, but all arriving at the same conclusion. You can come from different angles, but you come just as you are. Here's the fourth one. It's going to sound a lot like the first one in title, but let me assure you, it's completely different. Obtaining the kingdom is a personal transaction. In both the parables, that priceless object is acquired through the disposition of every possession that they own. Everything that they have, they're willing to give up. Now, for this reason, some people are really uncomfortable with this parable. They think it's showing that you can actually buy salvation, that there's something to be traded to get it. 
Let me be really clear on this because the Bible is crystal clear on this. Salvation in Jesus Christ is the free gift of God. Amen? Lest anyone would boast, Scripture goes on to say. It's the free gift of God. So the Bible's not going to contradict the Bible. The Bible doesn't speak against the Bible. Yet if you interpret this correctly, it's telling you that anyone who names Jesus as Lord... That one's surrendering everything, and therein is the cost. See, God doesn't ask you to pay for your sin this morning. He's already done that on the cross through Jesus. He's already paid for your sin. But if you choose to follow Jesus, it will cost you everything in the sense that he owns you at that point. You're his. You become his if you're confused about this, we spent some time in the 9 o'clock service afterwards doing Q&A, talking about this very issue. If you're confused about this, let not your heart be troubled. I want to speak to you about this. Remember what the parables are? Taking a physical reality laid alongside a spiritual reality. Well, Jesus is taking the physical reality of a world that they understand, transactions, banking transactions, purchases that make sense to them, and he's doing it to make a point He's laying it alongside this spiritual principle, this transaction of surrender, of surrendering yourself. So regarding your salvation, there is an exchange. There's an exchange of the old life, turning in the old ways for the new. You're surrendering something. Even the Old Testament speaks of this. The Old Testament writers, many of them didn't really understand the grace that was coming during the kingdom age. But even during that time, Isaiah captures a thought about that. Let me show you an example of what I mean on the screen. Isaiah 55, 1. Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And here's the conundrum. And you who have no money, come buy. How do you buy if you don't have money? Come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. What's he driving at there? Well, the buying is not with money. It's not with possessions. It's in the coming with a humble heart, saying, I've got a need. To the degree someone would even say, I'm hungry. I, I need wine. I need milk. I need sustenance. That example is used over to someone who has a desperate need for the forgiveness of sin. They, they come with just themselves. So that one is giving up all the worthless things everything that their life represented in order to receive the priceless things that God gives. I hope you take this one out the door with you. You need to remember this. What we give up in no way pays for our salvation. It can't possibly. What we give up is worthless. My righteousness is as filthy rags, Scripture says. It amounts to nothing but on that point, I need to pause for just a minute because we want to be really careful to never underplay the cost of salvation. I'm afraid in a zeal to see your friends and your coworkers and your neighbors and maybe even your children, in a zeal to see them receive Jesus, to understand what he's offering, we can present salvation. We can tempted to say there's no cost to it. Well, that's not entirely true. First and foremost, it costs Jesus everything. But secondly, and very crucially, it does require something. It requires a surrender of yourself. 
the things that you find yourself entangled with. There's a reason Paul said, I die daily. He had to die to himself. So Jesus is driving this point home. A true believer is going to be willing to pay whatever the cost because they understand the value of the treasure. And apart from yielding all that they are, the profession of faith is completely worthless. This is a classic example for you. Jesus had a a rich young ruler come alongside him. We'll call him a millennial, okay? He's got a lot of money. He's a wealthy millennial. He comes up to Jesus and says, I've I've done everything. I've kept the laws. I've honored my father and mother. I've been really good about keeping things in order. How do I inherit eternal life? Jesus said, that's great that you've done all those things. You lack one thing, though. Go and sell all that you have, and then come and follow me. See, he saw the pearl. The pearl was gigantic in his sight. He saw the pearl, but the price was too great. You're asking me to give up that? So the story goes on to say he walked away sorrowfully. Real life situation. He thought he wanted Jesus, but said, no, I I can't go there. The kind of work that we're talking about, that's the work of the Holy Spirit on the human heart because you can't get there on your own. That's God's spirit working on someone. And for some individuals, that work develops slowly over a period of time. Other people get it right away. But Jesus' point is still the same. A true believer is going to be willing to pay whatever the cost is. So for some, it's going to be a surrender of treasure. For some, it's going to be a surrender of their plans. For others, it's their occupation. This is where it gets dicey. For some, it's a surrender of relationships. The Bible says that good company is corrupted by individuals who have bad morals. Individuals can have a social circle, a friend circle, who keep dragging them down, dragging them down, dragging them down, and they never become what they're supposed to become in Christ. Bad company corrupts good morals. It may be necessary to surrender relationship, but understand this very clearly. That surrender does not buy salvation. There is no treasure that you have that is of any value to God. He owns it all already. He owns everything. The surrender, therefore, is then necessary not because it buys anything, but because it's inevitable. It's inevitable when somebody realizes that pearl of great price That salvation issue, I really, really desire this. If I've confused you with my thoughts, let me give you a couple quotes from some individuals whom I respect and are good theologians. John MacArthur, first one. Look at his quote on the screen. Salvation that is not desired above everything else is not truly desired. So it costs nothing whatsoever in the sense of payment but it costs everything in the sense of surrender. I've found that relationships are one of the greatest measures of the issue that we're talking about. Jesus knew that so much about us, about our human nature, that he intimately said this. Look with me on the screen, Matthew 10, 37. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. 
And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who has found his life shall lose it, and he who has lost his life for my sake shall find it. One more. Matthew 16, six chapters later. If anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Do you know what a cross meant to someone in the first century? It's an execution device. They weren't looking at it as a religious symbol. It's a, it's a form of execution. Jesus is saying, pick up that and be willing to surrender even your physical life. If that's what it takes for you to be fully surrendered to me, including your physical life. So Jesus makes it really, really clear, and this is a huge truth. If you don't surrender the old life, you're never going to have the new. Now, most people, when they discover that great pearl, when they come to the realization of what Jesus offers, they discover the infinite value of it, they simply yield. They don't do an inventory of the things that they're going to have to give up because the value of what they're gaining is so huge. They don't stop and do an inventory and say, wait, it's going to cost me this and this and this because the focus is not on what we give up. The focus is on what we received. Now, I found after relationships, the thing that's next most precious to us, this is going to pinch a little bit. The thing that's most precious to us and is probably the last thing we want to give up our sins. We like to keep them around as little private pets, thinking that doesn't really matter that much to God. It's what he died for, to free us from our sins. These are part of what must be surrendered. If, if there's no surrender of sin, you have to wonder if the transaction ever took place originally. J.C. Riley lived in the 1800s, and he said this in 1856. When a man will venture nothing for Christ's sake, we must draw the sorrowful conclusion that he has not got the grace of God. Don't, don't be keeping private sins around like pets that you want to get out when you're lonely, just so you have some company. The one who truly belongs to him longs to give those things up. That's why it's called the pearl of great price. It costs a lot. Sometimes relationships do get in the way. Sometimes occupations do get in the way. Sometimes possessions do get in the way. And certainly, sin gets in the way. There's a reason Jesus told this story from this direction. It is a pearl of great price. Uh, here's the last thing I want to send you out the door with. And I've missed this for years and years and years. I've probably been reading this parable since I was a little child. And I've always missed the aspect of the joy factor. And this is the part I want to send you out the door with. Jesus says that this man was very happy, joyful over his discovery. Would you not agree that finding a treasure is a joyful experience? It's huge. I'm thinking Bill Ballard, when he discovered the Titanic on the bottom of the Atlantic Ocean, they were doing cartwheels. That's joyful when you find buried treasure, when you find something that no one else has ever found. It's in his joy that leads him to buy the field, even though he has to sell everything that he has in order to gain it. Because the joy in what each is gaining here is far greater than the surrender 
I know our society misses this. Joy is a basic desire to every human being. We don't eat for drudgery. We eat because food brings us joy, right? We love what it does to our palate. We don't earn money for drudgery. We earn money because of the joy we think it's going to bring when we acquire the possessions that we want. Joy is basic to every single human. And you get enough of that and you want to take that joy and turn it into, I want fame and I want power and I want knowledge and all those things that we long after. They're the result of that joy factor, the desire to fill that hole. If you've lived long enough, you know that all those joys, ultimately, they disappoint. Because no one on their deathbed ever said, I want to earn just one more dollar. Right? On their deathbed, they're likely to say, I just love another minute with my child. Can I have just one more breath? But no one ever said, I wish I would have worked longer. I wish I would have had more power. The source of joy is Jesus Christ our Lord. That's what Scripture says. Look with me on the screen. John 15, 11. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full. Because we were made by God, for God, joy can only be found in God. You need to hear that again? Because you were made by God, for God, your true source of joy can only be found in God. Jesus says, it's mine, I want to give it to you. I want it to be full. Now here's my final thought for you. In both parables, both the land buyer and the merchant, both of those individuals take decisive action. When they find that treasure, they see opportunity. And they say, the opportunity is there. I'm going to act on it. I'm going to act on it now. Can I encourage you this morning? If God has moved in your heart in some way, act on it. Take action. Scripture says, now is the day of salvation. Meaning, don't push it off. Don't wait for another opportunity. Act on it now. There is no cost that is too great when your eternity is at stake. Let's pray and ask God to seal this in our heart. Father, I know that it pleases you that every single person who is in this auditorium and everyone who's watching online right now is drawn into the place where we're calculating. We're all doing this mental calculation about where we stand with you. For those who may be doing a calculation and find that they come up short and they're not really in a relationship with you. Father, I pray that you would push gently with the power of your Holy Spirit, maybe forcibly where you need to, to cause that one or two or 10 or 20, I don't know how many, to come to the place of surrender. To not leave this auditorium until this issue has been dealt with. Father, for every single one of us that is here, I pray that your blessing would rest heavily on us in this way, that you would seal in our hearts the things that we have just studied. We might be able to use this for someone that we know. So God, help us, even supernaturally, to recall the things that we've discussed this morning. We might be able to speak into the life of a friend at work or someone at school. 
maybe in our neighborhood, perhaps even in our own family. All these things we lay at your feet asking that you would use them for the expansion of your kingdom, the kingdom that we are privileged to be part of. And we ask that you would do that in the name of Jesus Christ, our soon coming King. And all God's people said, amen. Have a great week, New Hope.